Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry. Welcome to another session. This is the 29th of June, 2019. And I'm here today to um, get really on with our discussion of the protease inhibitors and proteases in general and how they mediate or are involved in hepatocellular carcinoma via the various stages that we've been discussing now for over the last month on uh, my program. So first of all, I want you to remind you from the previous discussions of protease inhibitors, such as the serpents, um, you might EO-IPSO obtain that PIs will, um, that is protease inhibitors, will block you know, like any extracellular matrix degradation. That's what it seems like it's they're capable of doing because they will inhibit the activity of enzymes that require proteolytic conversion in order for them to be fully active, like the plasminogen activator to plasmin, generating plasminogen to plasmin, and then plasmin carrying out the duties of an enzyme that can function as uh, a moderator of extracellular matrix alteration, for example. And that's what we've been talking about. However, serpent inhibition of the plasminogen activator, which of course then would block plasmin activity because plasmin wouldn't be made, actually promoted brain metastasis. And it did so by a mechanism that blocked plasmin-mediated association of the of two of basically two systems. One is by converting membrane-bound astrocytic FASL, which is a gene, which is a gene product, FASL, which is the ligand for the FAS receptor, into a, a, a paracrine death signal for cancer cells. So if you suppress plasmin, you don't get the convertase activity, you don't get the membrane-bound astrocytic FASL to turn into a paracrine death signal for cancer cells. The second thing that happens when you suppress plasmin via a serpent activity is you inactivate the protein called axon pathfinding molecule, uh, which has a title L1-CAM. And when that happens, uh, normally uh, the L1-CAM, metastatic cells express for spreading along brain capillaries and for metastatic outgrowth. So if you don't have plasmin, you can't inactivate this pathfinding molecule, L1-CAM. If you can't do that, then you can promote the spreading along brain capillaries for metastatic growth. So basically what we we're telling you last time when we finished serpents, which of course are generated from metastasizing lung and breast cancer cells, um, can circulate. They can enter the central nervous system. And they can prevent this plasmin-induced suppression of brain cancer. Okay, so that means, as I uh, title that talk, we have an anisotropy. We have two different possible mechanisms for how ultimately protease inhibitors can yield a response on a hepatocellular carcinoma. So we're going to talk about now about a molecular model and that illustrates how oxidized serpent A3 complex with another protein called the heterogeneous nuclear ribonucleoprotein, 
uh, protein K as a, acts as a transcriptional activator for hepatocellular carcinoma cell survival and proliferation. Now, this paper just came out in Redox Biology in 2019. So that's Redox Biology, name of the journal, 2019, June. The um, issue is 24, and the development page, page is 101 and 217. So basically what we've got here is really an interesting scenario. Um, and it's going to take me a few minutes to get through it, but it's really important that you um, – you know, did you evaluate this relative to all the things we've been talking about? So in low reactive oxygen uh, species environment, the serpent A3 does not associate with that uh, ribonuclear protein K protein, okay, that, that, that particular species. It doesn't associate with this particular domain, the K domain of it. And when that happens, you get basically an inefficient or inaccurate recruitment to DNA, which normally would then allow for gene regulation of this complex. However, when you have high reactive oxygen species, and of course that's happening in the middle of a tumor, in a tumor environment, what occurs on the serpent A3 molecule is you get an oxidation of several of the amino acids. Um, uh, all of these happen to be methionines. And there are actually four different methionines that become oxidized. And when that happens, the serpent A3 will actually bind with that ribonuclear protein K, and that will induce this transcriptional activation. So the upregulated transcriptional activity of the ribonuclear protein K is associated with the oxidized serpent A3. It promotes hepatocellular carcinoma proliferation via a transcriptional activation of basically pro-tumorigenic genes. So when you get serpent A3 expressed and in a high reactive oxygen species environment, that's going to yield a poor prognosis. Now, what genes are we talking about that are actually turned on by this system? Well, we're not going to, I'm not going to mention too many of them today because we've already been giving you a whole uh, battery and constellation of genes to think about. But the one I want to just key in on right now is the phosphatidylinositol 1,3 kinase delta, the isoform delta. So the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinases come in multiple forms, alpha, beta, delta, and gamma. And the alpha and beta are often targets for chemotherapy. And that using sometimes monoclonal antibodies, sometimes inhibitors of the kinase itself. So uh, nibs and mabs, right? Um, so the idea is if you can knock out that um, uh, PI13 kinase activity, you can block certain kinds of cancer. So this has been known for a long time. But the delta species of that enzyme um, it, its profound effect in cellular carcinoma hasn't really been well described. This paper helps us understand a little bit more about it. So in another paper, uh, in another publication in Hepatology, the journal Hepatology, published just around Christmas time in 2018, so some six months ago. So that would be Hepatology 2018, December, issue 68, pages 220, 85, and ongoing. This is what we gained from this particular paper. Hydrogen peroxide selectively increases 
acetal 1,3 kinase delta activity while decreasing that of all the other classes of class 1 PI3 kinases. So by blocking PI3 kinase delta activity with a specific inhibitor or by using a small interfering RNA, what they obtained in this epitology paper was an inhibition of paracellular carcinoma proliferation. And it dampened the key features, actually, of malignant HCC, including the upregulation of a, a gene called TERT, which we've talked about before in authentic biochemistry and also in my very bad lectures. TERT is the telomerase reverse transcriptase, which basically allows you to make, to, to immortalize telomeres so that cells can become immortalized. If you remember how telomeres control the ultimate senescence and death of uh, cells. So hydrogen peroxide-induced oxidative modification, here we go, just like this last one, we're talking about brain metastasis. Hydrogen peroxide-induced oxidative modification of the serpent peptidase inhibitor, um, and this is the same one, serpent A3, blocking its ubiquitin-dependent degradation and enhancing its activity as a transcriptional, what about this? Transcriptional activator of the P13 kinase delta and the TERT. So this is just what we are talking about before, how you've got a serpent not acting directly as a inhibitor of a convertase, but actually, actually acting as a transcriptional co-activating molecule. Remember, it was co-activating with that ribonuclear protein K, right? So then you go into the details on this paper. They just simply said that they found out that when you have this high uh, reactive oxygen species environment, they use hydrogen peroxide, you get the activity um, of, you get the expression of the P13 kinase delta and the TERT. Both of those gene products promote hepatocellular carcinoma. So high P13 kinase delta levels in hepatocellular carcinoma correlate with poor survival rates. That's absolutely the case. Uh, and with human advanced HCC, it shows a positive correlation between the protein levels of, here, here it is with the protease inhibitors, with the serpent A3, with the P13 kinase delta, and all with the TERT. All three of them positively correlate with poor survival and human advance now, hepatocellular carcinoma. So that looks like the P13 kinase delta plays a significant role and these malignant liver tumors. And it suggests that we might be able to look for inhibition of that delta isoform of that P13 kinase. Now that's great, but upstream from that, remember what's regulating it is this serpent oxidation, right? So this is a very interesting uh, aspect. So again, when you've got high levels of hydrogen peroxide, um, you you don't get ubiquitination of the serpent A3, so it doesn't get degraded by the ubiquitin proteasomal pathway. Because of that, you get, because it's been oxidized, it can't be. So then you get this oxy-serpent A3. It turns on the P13 kinase delta. That turns on AKT pathway by phosphorylating AKT. AKT, phospho-AKT, turns on tert expression, TERT expression, that immortalization of the cells, gives you the malignant hepatocellular carcinoma, survival and proliferation. At the same time, you get an inhibition of the P13 kinase alpha activity and beta activity and gamma activity. So this is a precisely just a delta domain, 
P13 kinase delta domain, as associated with the serpent uh, with transcriptional control. So this is a really interesting paper, right? All right. So here's another paper recently published. This is in Cancer Treatment Reviews, uh, published uh, in 2017 in volume. Here's 59, pages 93 to 101. Now, this one here just specifically just talks about P13 kinase. So the mechanism of action of P13 kinase mTOR inhibitors is what this paper is about. So I'm giving you now the background of P13 kinase. Signaling through P13 kinase in general regulates multiple cellular processes. It can contribute to the development of a lot of kinds of malignancies. So there are multiple inhibitors under development for either the P13 kinase and the mTOR. So I'm just now introduced from that recent paper that was published just, you know, just in December of 2018. Uh, in hepatology about how we might want to be looking at the delta specifically, that isoform. So basically, P13 kinases function is you get IGF or PDGF or TGF-alpha or VEGF, all of those growth factors binding to receptors. When they do that, they turn on the RAS, RAF, MEK, ERK pathway. And all of that leads to the expression of genes that should allow for survival, proliferation, differentiation of tumor cells. But likewise, all those growth factors turn on P13 kinase. And so P13 kinase then activates the AKT, like we just said, and the AKT then goes on to generate expression of genes which promote hepatocellular carcinoma. And so we have inhibitors for that P13 kinase. We have inhibitors for the AKT. We have inhibitors for the mTORCs, particularly mTORC2 and 1 specifically for the S6K and for the e, uh, EBP1, all of those are now controlling protein synthesis. We have inhibitors for all those specific ones. So now, given what I just told you about the delta isoform, uh, P13 kinase uh, delta isoform, it might be that we won't have to control this entire pathway by blocking these downstream mediators. We want just might, might just either want to control a, the P13 kinase delta at the level of its activity, right? Uh, we might be very concerned about trying to control it at the serpent A3 level. And of course, using um, mediators that reduce reactive oxygen may aid in the inhibition of oxidation of the serpent A3, but that might also mitigate problems with other mechanisms that normally would uh, control tumor growth um, by necrosis. So we necessarily might necessarily go that way either. So that was two more papers I wanted you to take a look at. So let's go back now in the literature and, and uh, continue to examine these serpents, okay? So what I do in my, uh, uh, my, my profession is I find uh, newly published papers I find out what they say, and I vet the data. I, I look at the evidence. I determine whether or not that evidence can be verified within the context of the paper. So I look at the data. That's not what I'm doing here today. I'm just giving you the results of my analysis, okay? But what I do in VeribMed in, in that paradigm is I look at the papers and I say whether or not the papers actually have validated the evidence they presented. So that's one thing. So far, the papers I've pointed out to you, I've looked at the information at the level of the data generated, the experimental design, how the experiments were conducted, what the controls were for those experiments. And I've determined that those papers did result in the explanations that I just provided for you with the serpents, for example. But the next thing you need to do, not just look at current papers, you need to go back in the literature. You need to go back and 
and rediscover what's already been published so that you can get a corpus of information uh, from the research literature. And that combines together to give you a complete ontological perspective about the events associated with specific biochemical uh, and uh, cellular phenomena. Okay, so we want to be able to carry out that dialectical interaction. We want to do a logical analysis. We want to look at events, not substances. So how, how those events are functioning in the cell, like what's really going on dynamically. And then we want to know if whether or not that actually occurs in our system that we're examining and how it occurs in different tissue types, different cell types over time and within different spatial differentiations. So that's ultimately what we have to do with the research literature. Otherwise, we could be going down a lot of rabbit holes, develop a lot of pharmacotherapies that target, for example, serpents or P13 kinase delta even. And we find out that, of course, there are going to be additional effects if you inhibit something as paradigmatic as a protein kinase or as a protease inhibitor, right? So you're already going to have to handle that off in clinical analysis with when you're doing human studies, before that, of course, the subclinical animal studies, before that, cell studies. But even all that said and done, that might not be the precise target you want to look at because of the valency of the target. That is the anisotropy, the antinomy of the target. That is that you might get it working positively in one instance and negatively in another. And it might change over time, for example, when things become metastatic. So it's important to look at the previous literature. So here's a paper published. Uh, this is about five years ago, April 2014, in the FASAP journal, another great journal. This is volume 28, supplement 144.7. So this is an abstract of a publication. Now listen to this. The hypoxia-inducible factor 2-alpha, which we've talked about quite a bit at the beginning of this stream of consciousness on HCC, uh, H1F2-alpha mediates, as you might recall, hypoxia-dependent, hypoxia-dependent upregulation of multiple genes. Here we're talking about the upregulation of the serpent B3, not the A3, the B3. Now that protein happens to be a marker of early liver carcinogenesis. We were just talking about late-stage ACC. Uh, this is now more like prodromal or at least early onset of the, of the HCC. So Let's listen to this paper. This paper, by the way, came out of Padova, uh, Italy. So the upshot of this paper is this. The serpent B3 is, of course, a cysteine protease inhibitor upregulated, and it's upregulated in cirrhosis, dysplastic nodules, and in hepatocellular carcinoma. And what this paper says is that the serpent B3, or they call it SB3, what it does, how it functions, this protease inhibitor, it triggers that epithelial to mesenchymal transition, that EMT we've been talking about. Never a good thing when we're talking about cells making that transition. Once you become uh, mesenchymal, that basically allows you to reprogram the fate of that cell lineage. And that's usually then portents when you have mutations, when you have reactive oxygen around, that can often portent to tumorigenic phenomena. So this uh, protease inhibitor, serpent B3, which is a cysteine protease inhibitor, um, triggers that EMT, that transition, and therefore an increased invasiveness in hepatic cancer cells. So what they did in this study, they investigated whether hypoxia, through the involvement of this HIF-1-alpha, 
could affect that SB3 expression. And they used a bunch of different techniques. They looked at cell types, cell lineages. They did molecular, biochemical, and cell uh, cellular experiments. Uh, They used different cell lines. This is all at the cell line level, okay? And they saw that epoxy resulted in the SB3 upregulation at the transcriptional level and at the protein level. And indeed, also at the level of being secreted extracellularly into the medium. Then they went ahead and they used um, small interfering RNAs, and they used a chip assay that's looking now at chromatin remodeling. And it looks like this SB3 upregulation is mediated, again, by this HIF-2 alpha, but not HIF-1 alpha. Now, that's interesting if you're really concerned about this differential overall expression changes of HIF-1 versus HIF-2. And and there is an interest in that, of course. But it's HIF-2 alpha. It binds specifically to the SB3 promoter, and it's therefore a redox-dependent event. That's basically what it's telling you. So the correlation between hypoxia, HIF-2-alpha, and SB3 expression was all supported by the experiments done in, in this study. They used immunohistochemistry. Uh, they, used, um, uh, trend, uh, they used RNA blots. They used protein blots. They were able to really hammer down this event. And what they found that in normal murine liver and tumor specimens from HCV cirrhotic patients uh, that carried HCC, they found this upregulation, okay? So remember that you have this, uh, uh, you, you have a, a liver-derived virus, right? The HCV, right? And the HCV and HCB, there are antibodies to these viruses, right? And so when you can block the virus, you can block cirrhosis. If you can block cirrhosis, you can ablate HCC. That's been a general practice. That's why there are vaccines now for HCV, uh, B and HCV, um, C, or HCV and HBV, sorry. So now we're figuring out how this virus can induce, because of the increase in reactive oxygen, this whole cascade of pathways that ultimately feed through the HIF2-alpha pathway. It makes it redox-sensitive. So we're going to go back and revisit this, of course, but now we're looking at a totally different serpent. It's a cysteine protease inhibitor, not a serine protease inhibitor. So it's, not a, so it's a, it, it, it works on the same kind of molecular activity, but a slightly different nuanced mechanism because the enzyme is, is different uh, of a different subfamily. And so SB3 definitely is a protein which marks early liver carcinogenesis. But you notice the way it functioned, right? It wasn't functioning as a protease inhibitor. Again, it was regulating gene transcription. Another paper published now several years ago, this is in the journal Endocrine, published in 2012, April, and the volume on that is 41, and the paper pages are 176 to 182. Um, There's a protein called Vaspin, and Vaspin is found in uh, obese patients and in type 2 diabetics. And it has a pathophysiological and clinical significance. Now, what is Vaspin? Vaspin stands for visceral adipose tissue-derived serpin, right? So a serine protease inhibitor. Now, the, the, new, uh, the numerical uh, configuration for that is serpin A12, 
So this is serpent A12. Now, again, in a, a new isoform. And so it was originally ad identified as an adipokine, um, and it's primarily and actually predominantly secreted from visceral adipose tissue. So it is generally an adipokine, but its, its mechanism is by that of being a serpent. Okay? So administration of Vaspin to obese mice, according to this publication, improved many of the diabetic markers and improved glucose tolerance, insulin sensitivity, it even reduced food intake, therefore might be functioning at that level of an adipokine. But until now, the target, until that paper was published, now that's now seven years ago, but see, it's buried in the literature. That's why I'm pulling it out. Until that paper was published, the target of Vaspin and its mode of action weren't known. So the identification of the proteases, which are actually inhibited by Vaspin, are going to lead to the development of novel strategies. And, and this now, this paper isn't looking at pedocellular carcinoma. This paper is looking at inhibiting Vaspin to treat obesity, diabetes, and insulin resistance. Okay, so you get the idea how co terribly complicated this can be because you have multiple pathophysiologies that uh, affect humans. And so you have to determine whether or not they overlap, and sometimes they do, or whether or not they are unique, and you can actually use a drug to block one entire pathway. One more thing I'm going to talk about. This paper was published in Gut, again, but way back in 2012, and it shows concurrent PDEDF deficiency in crass mutation induces an invasive pancreatic cancer and an adipose-rich stroma in mice. So there's a, a protein called pigment epithelial-derived factor with PEDF. Now, that's a non-inhibitory serpent. That means it doesn't have any... Um, uh, activity as a serpent, but it has the correct coding region for one. It actually, so this particular PEDF is potent antiogenic and was recently implicated in metabolism and in adipogenesis, both of which, of course, are known to influence pancreatic cancer progression. Okay, so it is an anti angiogenic, which normally means a good thing in terms of uh, cancer therapy. Increased pancreatic fat in human pancreatic tumors correlates with a greater tumor dissemination. And while this PEDF deficiency in mice promotes pancreatic hyperplasia and visceral obesity, okay, it, it may indeed also be involved in the cancer. So oncogenic RAS, which is the most common mutation in pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, as PDAC, that's the most common pancreatic cancer, was similarly shown to promote adipogenesis and premalignant lesions. So it looks like this lipid uh, organizing system around this PEDF in the pancreas is associated with whether or not you proceed with full-blown pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. So the methods they use methods in order to determine whether concurrent loss of that PD, PEDF, remember pigment epithelial derived factor, which is a non-inhibitory serpent, would be sufficient to promote adipogenesis and tumorigenesis in the pancreas. And so this is what they wanted to look at. And the results were pretty clear. PEDF deficient mice developed invasive PDAC. Remember, PDAC is pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. So PEDF deficient mice that is deficient in that particular non-inhibitory serpent developed invasive PDAC. And this was associated with enhanced matrix metalloproteinase activity, both the isoform 2 and the isoform 9, MMP2, MMP9, respectively. Their expression and increased 
peripancreatic activity. This also was associated with peripancreatic fat deposition and adipocyte hypertrophy uh, and intrapancreatic adipocyte infiltration, a, uh, a uh, process known as pancreatic steatosis. Uh, remember the hepatic steatosis we talked about, we've been talking about for the longest time now. Okay, so I'm going to stop there and uh, we will pick up on this uh, in a subsequent um, you know, authentic biochemistry. So what I want to say now is what I always say at the end, goodbye for now.